0: Welcome to the Scientific American Podcast, Science Talk, posted on September 30th, 2011. I'm Steve Persky. This week on the podcast...
1: Sometimes after immunotherapy, tumors would actually appear to grow. But it turns out, frequently what happens, you get immune cells coming into the tumor cell so the, so the growth is not due to the growth of tumor cells but to the influx of immune cells.
0: That's Eric Von Hoffa. He's a cancer researcher and president of the biotech company Antigen Express in Worcester, Mass., and he's the author of an article in the October issue of Scientific American called A New Ally Against Cancer About Cancer Vaccines. We spoke recently when he was in New York City. We go all the way back over 100 years. You you discuss in the article the work of Coley, who uh, who had some really interesting and creative ideas back
1: then. Right, right. He had noticed that in some cancer patients that had a serious infection and high fever, uh, that in those patients, the cancer sometimes would regress. So people had noticed for a while that tumors were kind of like wounds that wouldn't heal. Uh, so what he did to induce this uh, infection, uh, uh, kind of a mock infection, was to take bacteria, uh, heat them up gently till they were dead, inactivated, but they still induced fever in patients that he would inject them into. So he did this repeatedly, induced a very high fever, and sure enough, in many of those patients, he got a uh, an efficacious response in the cancers. So again, an indication that uh, he was stimulating something, of course, they were not very clear on the the workings of the immune system, uh, but something that could have a positive effect whereby the body on its own could then fight off the cancer.
0: In a situation like that, there are so many variables. You're, you're, once you start inducing fevers, you might be involving heat shock proteins. Who knows what was going on? But it did look like an avenue to be pursued.
1: Exactly. In fact, that was used for really quite a while, up until uh, people really discovered radiation and chemotherapy. Uh, so chemotherapy was something that, uh, um, you know, it was, it was much more of a, a – a more rational process where people realize that DNA replication was important for the cancer. So, okay, get something that would poison the DNA and, uh, or the replication machinery uh, and, and thereby those cells, particularly cancer cells that are rapidly dividing would be uh, preferentially killed. And um,
0: you don't pursue the possibility of the vaccine aspect because the others, the radiation and the chemo seem to be working in a really promising fashion, so the other thing just gets put on the back burner, so to speak,
1: right, so at the time um uh, you're right, they just didn't know enough about the immune system now it was it was clear pretty early on that a lot of these agents they had a lot of non specific toxicity so uh and then, you know there's there's clearly been advances in the use of these more toxic agents um but people always, you know, they knew that the immune system was great at killing off lots of different things, very specifically uh, with no side effects. So this was really kind of what people were hoping for uh, to get this this added specificity uh, in cancer killing uh, without the toxicity.
0: And your article also talks about Paul Ehrlich, who is, you know, one of the giants in the history of medicine and, and medical research. And his efforts in this field.
1: Right, right. Well, he was one of the first people that observed that, um, or proposed the immune surveillance. You think there was something in the body that was on its own combating cancer and didn't, you know, couldn't define what it was. But, uh, it was that idea that, that really planted the seed for what's later come to be known as the immune surveillance, uh, mechanism for, um, uh, reducing, uh, the incidence of cancer in people.
0: So people. The idea being that you've, cancers are constantly cropping up, and constantly being swept out by the immune system.
1: Exactly, exactly. So if you look at, you know, it's clear now that, that mutagenic events um, are generally required for cancer, so uh, you can then estimate, uh, statistically, the number of mutations that occur in a human body per year, and from that, get an idea of the number of cancers one might expect. Uh, but in fact, thankfully, that that instance of cancer is much lower than one would calculate. So, to explain that discrepancy, people then came back to the immune surveillance theory, that there's got to be something that's always on the patrol, looking for something different uh, and fighting off those, those early cancers so they don't appear.
0: Let me go off on a mini tangent, because a lot of our listeners probably have never even heard of Edward G. Robinson, but they should go see, it's probably on Netflix, go get Dr. Ehrlich's Magic Bullet and watch the movie with Edward G. Robinson. And Ruth Gordon, I think, plays his wife. And it's really pretty decent uh biopic about this real medical colossus
1: yeah good movie definitely definitely yeah
0: so we've been relying on chemo and radiation uh for the most part for many decades how is the idea of a vaccine against cancer coming back into vogue and how does a cancer vaccine differ from a conventional vaccine
1: Right. So people first have the idea of doing this. It really goes back many decades. Um, uh, I think 30 odd years ago when I was still in graduate school, people had the idea of taking cancer cells, just irradiating them and trying to immunize say, uh, animals in this case to see if they could have an effect. Uh, and they didn't, uh, the short of it was, I mean, there were some, some observation animals that was interesting, but nothing that ever made it in the clinic. So, uh, it wasn't that people, um, that the idea fell from favors, they just didn't know how to do it. So it really took a lot of, um, you know, basic research um, by a lot of different people to find out the different aspects of the immune system, how it worked, and how one could then manipulate that, how one could present uh, tumor-associated proteins, so-called tumor antigens, in a way that you could stimulate the immune system to actually do its job in terms of killing off the, uh, the cancer.
0: So what specifically has gone on lately in the pipeline that makes people excited about the prospect of having actual therapies in clinicians' hands, you know, relatively soon?
1: So about eight years ago, uh, some studies were done that, um, that showed kind of a proof of principle. They took activated, they took T cells from patients, uh, stimulated those outside of the patient's body, Reinfuse those, and they, they showed they could do that in a manner that they that gave, that gave you an anti-cancer effect. So that was really kind of a brute force mechanism. There were lots of other trials that people conducted during the last 10 years, uh, which did not have positive outcomes uh, as they were used to looking for them. So there were a number of reasons for that. Uh, some, they just had not figured out the right way of delivering the antigen. Uh, but other things include not being able to to know exactly what to look for. So, for instance, with the cytotoxic agents that everyone's familiar with, it's a fairly simple mechanism of action. You give the person a cytotoxic agent, uh, the tumor hopefully shrinks, and that's a good thing. And that happens relatively rapidly. So that's in a couple of weeks or, uh, uh, you know, very, very quickly. With the immune system, that takes longer to stimulate and what makes it particularly difficult uh, is the idea of tolerance. So this is because cancer cells arise from a patient's own tissues, uh, the immune system doesn't really like to go after them. Of course, if it if it did, there'd be a lot of autoimmunity, uh, which is problematic. So this is known as tolerance. So one needs to break tolerance. Uh, to do that, one needs to figure out a way of ramping up the immune system uh, with, with various agents presenting the antigen in various contexts to actually get a response that's um, that's effective. So, uh, you know, you can't look immediately. It can take up to a year sometimes to get a sufficient response in the immune system to actually do something. Other things people have noticed is that sometimes after immunotherapy, tumors would actually appear to grow. So initially when people uh, saw that, they were like, oh my God, this is terrible. We're doing the, the exact opposite. Uh, but it turns out what happens? You get immune cells coming into the tumor cell, so the, so the growth is not due to the growth of tumor cells, but to the influx of immune cells. So these were things that, uh, of course, uh, people had to learn, and uh, uh, clearly the, the FDA had to be uh, educated. They had to be convinced that this was going on because they're the ones ultimately that are approving things. So there was a you know fair bit of learning that was done this last uh, ten years. Uh, the upshot of it is, though, uh, and there's been enough trials done, that people are starting to see these similarities in different things. So, in different types of treatments, people are saying that the tumor looks like it's growing a little bit. So, it's like, okay, you know, we're not crazy. Uh, on top of that, people are seeing interesting things that uh, increase, increase survival, things that don't quite make sense if you look at it in the light of classical chemotherapy. So... In particular, as we were just talking about, if the, the, sometimes the tumor can look like it's still growing, but there's an increase in survival. Mm-hmm. So again, this is something that, that's very contradictory for the FDA, and we really needed to learn how to use these agents. So I think there's been a lot of learning going on in the last 10 years, that if you look at the field as a whole, you start seeing patterns, you clearly see that, that we are having an effect with immunotherapies, and that's, that's given lots of encouragement to people in the field.
0: And it's important that you have enough of these different trials, maybe they're even phase one trials, going on so that you can start to see these things so that you know that, as you talk about in the article, your, your uh, benchmarks for success get redefined. Not that we're defining them downward. We're just saying... In this course, different things happen that you have to watch out for, and they may mark the fact that you 're actually getting something positive here
1: right that 's absolutely right that 's absolutely right so there were a lot there was just you said it exactly correctly there were lots of trials done, and it was really after people started comparing notes and, and gathering enough data that we began to see these patterns and um, uh, and seeing that we really had something so a lot of people persevered a long time. I mean, our company, um, you know, the company was around since the, uh, the late nineties. Uh, we started doing clinical trials in 2003 and lots of people were like, gosh, guys, you know, I don't know if this is, this is going to work. There's too many questions here. Uh, so, but we persevered and along the way we started to see that we were having immunological response that we hoped to see, uh, with our compound. And, uh, and at the same time, you know, the field was emerging. So I think, you know, we're, we're not alone in that. A lot of people are in that, in that position. So seeing that, uh, you know, they're getting smarter as they're developing. And of course, the, um, uh, the person who's first obviously gets, gets some of the biggest prize. So in this case, that was, uh, uh probably Dendrion that, that was approved about a year ago. Uh, again, this is a, a somewhat more complex type of immunotherapy. So this is with, uh, uh, cells from the patients again that are stimulated and modified outside the body, reinfused in, but that actually made it past the finish line. They got the approved by FDA, and uh that that coincided with lots of other earlier phase results, phase two results, uh, and, and people sort of compared notes with what they did to get over the finish line and could start to draw a line from where they were uh, in their earlier trials and see a kind of a clear path forward. So that gave a lot of uh, impetus to the field.
0: And again, that's still the first and only FDA-approved cancer vaccine therapy.
1: That's correct. That's correct. Now, there was another agent recently approved, um, Yervoy, bristol Squib, Squibb, which uh, modifies the immune system uh, essentially what it does is it kind of takes the brakes off the immune system. We talked about the idea of tolerance, whereby the immune system doesn't like to go after uh, its own tissues. Cancer, rising from normal tissues, of course, is a part of that problem. Um, but what Yervoy does is that does actually uh, take the brakes off the system and allows the immune system on its own to uh, fight the cancer more effectively. So while you're not activating the immune system uh, in a way that you are a vaccine, Clearly, we're using knowledge that was gained during this last decade. So a lot of people point to that as as part of this this larger success in the field of immunotherapy.
0: And would you fear um, an autoimmune side effect problem with that kind of therapy?
1: One does see that occasionally. Um, uh, that happens. It's, it's generally not very uh, severe, although people do need to watch that. And there are medications that are, that are available if needed. Uh, but that's, that's clearly a problem because it's a, it's a, again, it's not as specific as a therapeutic vaccine. It's a more general type of uh, treatment where you're taking the breaks off the immune system, but you're taking them off everywhere. So to be absolutely uh, uh, clear and precise, it's, it's not a vaccine. So a vaccine is something where I'm going to ultimately People will probably find a ways of combining these things where you take the brakes off a little bit and then you give some uh, specific stimulation uh, against a certain cancer-associated protein, which is, is really more how the immune system works normally. Normally, you're not taking the brakes off the immune system. You get infected with a bacteria or a virus or something. The immune system recognizes that as foreign and, and kills it effectively. So that's ultimately really what we're going after.
0: And the cancer vaccines... We have to think of them as a little, a little bit differently from vaccines that we're used to, like a flu shot, because you're, you're not going to just vaccinate a population. These are for patients, it looks like, who already have cancer, but it's in a very early stage and it can recognize the cancer, that specific cancer and keep it from growing rather than just, let's get everybody to be on this and then nobody's going to get cancer
1: right right so um very definitely the the cancer vaccines are therapeutic vaccines so they're not prophylactic like uh, uh like antiviral vaccines uh, flu vaccines and such um uh, i mean clearly uh, you know so so one has much more latitude obviously combating cancer in terms of toxicity because what we have so far is, is pretty tremendous a cytotoxic agents And it's pretty clear that with the vaccines so far, there's, um, there's much less toxicity. So over the past 10 years, again, when one started having to do trials in late stage cancer patients, which is typically the population one uses, um, but as people advanced these trials, it was very clear to the FDA that there was, there was minimal toxicity with these agents. So particularly what we're developing, peptide vaccines, modified peptide vaccines, uh, you know, peptides are, uh, uh, breakdown products of proteins in the body. So there's really nothing foreign to the body whatsoever. Um, and it was so, so the FDA then came to a comfort level with toxicity of these agents and allowed them to be used in earlier stage patients, which it looks like is probably the population that'll benefit most. Now, uh, clearly dendrion was approved in later stage prostate cancer patients. So, I think people are hopeful that even in later stage patients one can get activity, but the thinking is we'll probably see your, your greatest activity in the earlier stage cancer patients.
0: And what specifically is your company working on with the peptide vaccines?
1: Sure. Yeah. So we have a, um, a slightly modified peptide, so the, the company has a technology platform, which uh, uh, which aims at specifically stimulating CD4-T helper cells. So it's clear that this cell population is critical in generating a robust immune response against some novel agent. Uh, it's also important in in overcoming tolerance, as we talked about. So uh, what we've done, we, we, we took, first of all, a target, which was known to be involved in the growth of cancer, HER2, which is also the target of a monoclonal antibody out there, Herceptin, So, uh, we didn't really take a chance on that. We knew that if we could have a positive, uh, impact in terms of generating a response against HER2, we should be able to see some activity because it was, it was already validated in the clinic thanks to Herceptin. So, uh, we, yeah, we started that project back in, um, uh, 05. We started the first clinical trials, uh, showed that our peptide was safe and generated a, a specific potent immune response uh based on those results we started the phase 2 and this is in uh breast cancer patients uh the goal is to see a reduction in relapse in this group of cancer patients breast cancer patients so we're about 3 quarters of the way through the study have seen positive results so far so so far we're we're encouraged by what we've seen so it looks like we we are indeed um it, we can tell we are generally response against the her2 and uh, and indeed we're getting indications of efficacy so we're very very encouraged by that
0: and prevention of relapse is a reasonable uh, thing to look at because they're being treated presumably normally with the conventional armamentarium. So they're, you're not going to be able to see whether you're doing something to destroy the tumor.
1: That's right. That's right. Now, it's we're, we're in a little bit of a fortunate position in that. Herceptin initially. So this is the antibody that goes after her too. That was initially approved in metastatic cancer patients, which is the population that the FDA likes to see things working initially. And then it was approved in patients with with earlier stage, so prevention of relapse. So not just overall survival, but prevention of relapse. So we're fortunate we have that precedent. So and that was another reason we went after this population, because you know the thinking was that it would work better in earlier stage patients. Uh, but in some cancers, it's, it's, uh, you don't, you don't have an endpoint that the FDA will approve. They want survival. But in this, in this instance of breast cancer, we did have that. So that was, that was the reason we went this population, uh, with our, with our initial vaccine compound, therapeutic vaccine.
0: So other than because you can make money, why do this in the private sector rather than in an academic research setting?
1: Well, I mean, it's, uh, a good reason for biotech in general is that you can in fact raise more money, uh, although it's it's difficult these days, uh, for doing clinical trials than you can in academia. Now clearly you can do trials in academia, um, but it's uh, uh you're still frequently working in a microcosm. I mean there there are compounds that generally you take them to a certain stage, uh, but then even going through a phase two trial that can take several million dollars. People can and do, um, get grants for doing this. Uh, I think, and then clearly, of course, in phase three, registration trials, that is, uh, that's extremely difficult for academia. People don't really think about doing that in academia. The, the big difference is in academic, people are doing, you know, really exploratory. They're looking to advance knowledge, uh, find a proof of concept. They're not necessarily, not, not really geared to thinking, okay, what exactly is this drug going to look like once it's on the market? In biotechnology, that's what people are looking at. They're going to see, okay, what is going to make this a drug at the end of the day? Um, so there, there are other burdens they take on. So, so really seeing, uh, you know, how many patients one needs, what the endpoints are. Uh, I mean, there are lots and lots of hurdles one needs to think about uh, To uh, that I think people in academia probably – Uh, uh, try to, uh, uh, they shy away from a little bit because it is a, you know, it's a much larger hurdle to really line things, something up for approval rather than an exploratory study that, you know, builds knowledge basically. What has to
0: go right? What do you need to, uh, discover? What barriers do you need to overcome in the next few years for this kind of approach to Actually, get some footing. Right.
1: Right. Well, we've, we've cleared a number of hurdles so far. I mean, the first is um, showing that we have biological activity, uh, showing that we do not have any toxicity. Uh, the biggest next goal is really showing significant uh, uh, efficacy. So we have, in our early data, we've shown that we have fewer relapses in our, our peptide uh, vaccine arm uh, compared to the uh, the control arm of the trial. What we need to do is basically, uh, you know, allow those data to mature. It just takes time; that the, the trial has to run its course. Uh, we're hopeful that in about a year from now, we should have those statistically significant data, uh, such that we can go to an end of what's called an end of phase two uh, data with the FDA, and then 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 march on to the phase three. So that's that's uh, that's obviously a very big hurdle to clear, and you know, we'll probably not go that alone. Uh, that's something where, with good phase two data uh larger companies become interested they see that okay you, you, it's not just science anymore it's not just um uh proving a hypothesis but showing that you actually have the data uh, uh that you're showing efficacy then they'll get interested, and clearly at the end of the day i mean what what it's about is is saving people's lives and uh that's you know that's that that has value right there and and people recognize that
0: so at some point things go right enough so that a, a company that actually would be producing the drug gets involved and a partnership or a buyout or something happens.
1: Well, it's not necessarily the company that's producing the drug. It's, it's a company that can, um, uh, can co-develop, uh, uh, so first of all, there's, you know, there are tens of millions of dollars for these phase three trials. And, and again, it's also in these larger companies that have things like a sales force distribution network that we as a smaller biotech company do not have. So there's, um, you know, it's, it's a marriage in that sense. And that we, we come with, we, we know the drug, we know the history of it. Uh, we've, we've laid out the tracks for the train to go down. But we know that around the corner, there's going to be things like distribution, sales for all these things, uh, which larger pharma is, is really, um, you know, better equipped to deal with than we are.
0: So then uh, you're the organelle. That gets absorbed into the cell.
1: Yeah, so to speak, so to speak, right, exactly, exactly.
0: Well, uh, obviously, good luck. I'm sure everybody out there would be uh, really delighted if we had some, some new weapons against cancer.
1: Absolutely. Thank you very much.
0: Sadly, the 1940 movie Dr. Ehrlich's Magic Bullet with Edward G. Robinson does not, in fact, appear to be available through Netflix. So I guess just... Be on the lookout for it. Some movie channel has to run it one of these days. You'll find it really interesting. Well, that's it for this episode. Check out the cancer vaccine article in the October issue and get your science news at our website, www.scientificamerican.com, where you can check out our article on what physics luminaries think of the claim for faster-than-light neutrinos. And also bid farewell to the Tevatron, where they're turning off the light. And follow us on Twitter, where you'll get a tweet each time a new article hits the website. Our Twitter name is at Siam. For Science Talk, I'm Steve Mersky. Thanks for clicking on us.